0: Welcome to the Don't Trip on the Usual Travel Podcast from Beyond Experiences. My name is Kishin, and I'm going to be speaking with Anand today. He had a great trip to Tibet, which is also called as the third pole. And I'm going to be speaking a lot about it today. Over to you, Anand. Hey, Kishan. Tell me what do you know about Tibet See Anand, I've been hearing Tibet is supposedly to be the, the third pole. And it's pretty confusing enough because all that I've heard is the North Pole and the South Pole. So could you elaborate a little bit on what that mean, what that meant?
1: Of course, yes, this third pole is quite an interesting one. So they say that uh, there is a North Pole, there is a South Pole, and these are the magnetic poles, etc. The spiritual pole, which is on the Himalayas, it's on this plateau, the forbidden land of Tibet. Oh, that's that's, what's called, that's why it's called the third pole. Okay. But why
0: did you want to visit Tibet?
1: Well, no particular reason. It's always been on my bucket list ever since I was a kid. Yeah. Um, first brush with Tibet was tinted in Tibet. Ah, okay. And uh, I think in my childhood mind, my kid's brain that was there thought that if you get into Tibet, you'll have the abominable snowman, the Yeti coming knocking yeti. on your door and stuff like that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That was one. The second was this very, very obscure author called Lobsang and Rampa. And he was a person who had written a lot of books. Of course, there's some uh, controversy on him now that, uh, you know, maybe he he wasn't in Tibet and so on. But those books that I read were phenomenal because he was a monk, a Tibetan monk who became a child monk when he was four or five years of age. He left his home and went there. And then he was in a monastery and he describes the monastery life, etc. It was quite a a, a, a huge reality trip, a huge uh, imagination trip for me. To think of people who could live like that and get such powers and uh, that was uh, the second one and the third was this constant fascination uh, during my youth when I read this book called uh, Seven Years in Tibet which is about a person who ran away from British uh, internment camp in India and he uh, crossed the Himalayas went into Tibet which is where he thought nobody else could find him and for seven years he was roaming around there with very less uh, Um, clothing and shoes and things like that and finally he goes around all over the place he reaches Lhasa etc which is the heart of the forbidden land, it was the capital of Tibet. Hmm. So lots of such stories got me very excited about Tibet, it had been on my bucket list uh, and uh, that's how it is and that's why Tibet. Okay, now uh, I think the,
0: the point that he made in regards to Lhasa, I think that is the only thing that actually strikes some form of imagination You know, uh, when when you talk about Tibet, and I believe uh, Lhasa is the place where the Potala
1: Palace is where the Lamas, was it Dalai Lama who stayed there? Yes, it was Dalai Lama. The the current Dalai Lama. Yes, the current Dalai Lama was from there and his earlier Dalai Lamas used to uh, stay and operate out of the Potala Palace, a fairly uh, heritage monument if I may say so. Okay, so let me do something since you're not uh, uh, completely clear on Tibet, so let me just kind of give you a blow-by-blow blow of what I did there and give you a fair enough perspective. Yeah, sure, that'll help. But it will be a longish discussion um, So and I have to rush somewhere. So, so if, if that's the case, then we could perhaps uh, split it into two segments. Yeah, in about 15-20 minutes, we can have a discussion up to the uh, Everest base camp. And uh, I did go to the Everest base camp from the, uh, from the northern face of the Everest, so you can go through Tibet there. So I'll talk about the Everest base camp uh, in the next one, if you don't mind, the next time that we meet. Okay. So here's how I we went. Um, you know, it's very difficult. It's, it is a forbidden land. It was the forbidden land. It has always been the forbidden land. Um, the Brits, for instance, were not allowed to get in there even when they controlled India. What used to happen is that uh, the authorities in Tibet and uh, very few people had been there and they wouldn't allow foreigners or the white-skinned people to get in there unless you're an Indian or a Tibetan. Now, in such a situation, what they had done is they still wanted to map the entire country because they were, as you know, as you know uh, if, you, if you've thought about that history, there was the opium wars that they were doing because they wanted to send opium grown in the Gangetic Plain in India into China and China was a big consumer. It always was a big consumer, I guess. So, they wanted to send it there. It was going by the sea route, going around um, uh, Southeast Asia, getting into the South China Sea and then coming into Canton and all of that to go and sell this, Kowloon. But it was a very expensive proposition. It used to take a lot of time. So, they were trying to find a land route to get into China from India, which meant more profits and so on. And they were very driven by profits and taxes. Now, the first, so, so they had to map this entire place. What they did is, they recruited, uh, the legend is that they recruited two Indians, two Indian pundits who were trained to walk exactly one foot with each step. Mm, That's interesting. With that kind of mincing gait, so they carried a rosary with them like all Indian uh, uh, holy men do. And they kept counting their steps. And that's how their first map was prepared of how far is it from India into Lhasa. And any idea how long it took? Because that could be you know, quite quite oh. a distance, and uh, you know it could have taken them about years, I would think. That's right. Actually, it's a very very interesting story, but that that keeps for another interesting story, really. But what had actually happened to those pundits is they started off, and as you know, in those days there were no cell phones and such forms of communication. So at all points they would reach a particular point, and then they'd put their findings into into um, pass it to some messenger who'd take it back, and they kept moving that way, but they never were never getting messages back. Mm -hmm. So, by which time some other uh, British officer had gone on top of one of the peaks and done uh, telescopes and some complicated trigonometrical analysis and figured out what the distance could be. But then their uh, mission had already started, they didn't know what it was and uh, and they continued. Mm -hmm. And it said that, you know, after the initial bit, it wasn't of any use because they anyway found it out with other uh, scientific advances. But then they had still continued and did their, uh, uh, took oh. that effort or that mission that they were sent out for. Mm-hmm. Anyway, it was, it was like that. So, the first Britisher who went in there into Lhasa was a person called Young Husband, a colonel really from the army. He had gone there with a large force expecting a huge uh, army out there to resist them. And he found that these were these peace-loving people who didn't have an army also to speak mm-hmm. of. Mm -hmm. So that's how the occupation of Tibet had happened at that time, the first one that happened. Anyway, so when I had gone there, uh, uh, I had gone into Nepal and I spent about three, four days or maybe five days in Nepal. I moved around Nepal, went into various places and I'll not bore you with details of that that I'll do later. But I stayed there and applied for a visa to get into Tibet from Nepal. Mm -hmm. So there are two kinds of uh, paperwork that you need. One is a China visa because Tibet is a part of China now. And uh, you also need a permit to visit Tibet. Now, these two take about four days uh, in Nepal. So it took me about three, four days uh, or so in Nepal. Got this and then took a flight from Kathmandu into Lhasa. It's a very short one-hour flight, but supremely expensive, essentially because there are very few flights allowed to fly. So took a short flight from Kathmandu to Lhasa, landed in Lhasa. Um, now, Lhasa is a place that's, that's fairly high up. It's a high altitude city. About uh, three and a half to three and a half, I think three thousand six hundred odd meters uh, above sea level, and uh, you need serious acclimatization when you get in there. I've gotten from Kathmandu, so maybe I had less of an issue. But if you're going from India, you'd probably need more of acclimatization. And I would think you went there during the winters, right? I went, you know, I went there during spring. During spring, yeah, it's a great time to go in. okay um, But one, when you land out there, you get, what I did is I straight away went to my hotel. There are lots of hotels around very very luxury kind of hotels, very western chains, uh, western influenced uh, architecture and chains that are there. I don't like staying in these places so I went and stayed in a very small place, a uh, beautiful old Tibetan house that's been converted into a hotel, so lovely it was. I uh, stayed there and bang in the middle of uh, just next to Jokhang street near Barkhur street, uh, near the Jokhan temple. So very very convenient location and in the center of the town So I stayed there and uh, the first night I just spent chilling out there. I stayed there, just got acclimatized. In the evening, I stepped out for a short walk on Barkor Street and nothing much else. I stayed for a few nights there in Lhasa. Mm-hmm. Um, the next day in the morning is when, so the Potala Palace is of course, like you mentioned, it is the highlight of the entire place. Um, the the home of the Dalai Lama for, for many centuries. Mm-hmm. So, I went to the Potala Palace. It's a winter palace of the Dalai Lama. Um, from the 7th century, I think it's been used. It was set up by the 33rd Greek king of Tibet. It's being used from then on and by the lamas, by the Dalai lamas. The construction of the entire um, city of Lhasa is such that there is no building that's taller than the Potala Palace. That's supposed to be the tallest. It's a sign of uh, um, disrespect if you build your house taller than that. So, that was one. I, and that's quite a sight here. Yeah. The Potala Palace is a sight to see. It's a UNESCO heritage place. It's beautiful. It's really taught. It's really ancient. You need a moderate level of fitness to climb up all those stairs. You go up there and then there is this, uh, there are these caverns dedicated to various Dalai Lamas, uh, previous Dalai Lamas. Of course, uh, uh, the last, the current Dalai Lama is not put up there because China doesn't allow that. And uh, in fact, you're not allowed to have a portrait of the Dalai Lama also in your bag. If you have any, if you're found with that, then you're immediately sent out of the country or arrested or whatever, you know, whatever they do. So I went and saw the Potala Palace and you have to book it in advance and then go there. They allow a restricted number of people on every day on specific times that you So you get a time um, stamp and you're supposed to go at that time there.
0: Okay, so, so there's nobody, I mean, do the monks still go there and
1: offer their prayers? Is it a functioning place anymore? Well, I don't know if it's completely functioning, but in, some, in front of some of the Dalai Lama's, I saw people praying, prostrating themselves, lighting incense sticks, etc. So I think some form of prayer happens. But the more important um, uh, prayer place is the Jokhang Temple. That was also founded by the 33rd Great King of Tibet, in, again in the 7th century. There, there is a statue of uh, uh, Sakyamuni Buddha mm-hmm. uh, at the age of 12. Mm-hmm. This is the most, most revered kind of temple and all around it is the famous street called Barkhor street mm-hmm. which kind of circumambulates the mm-hmm. temple and you find a lot of people, the pilgrims who make prostrations in front of the Jokhang temple. They go around Barkhor street in full prostrations <laughs> as in uh, Shashtanga Namaskar as we mm-hmm. call it. There in that when I went there it was it was rainy and there was it was very cold outside and they were prostrating themselves and moving around the entire place. right yeah. um, That's one. there are a lot of people who go in and that's what they call the Kora. Yeah. It's a religious circle of a building or a mountain, In Kailash also the Parikrama is called the
0: kora, yes, yes.
1: so they do this kora around uh, the Jokhan temple on Barkhor street, many of them do the kora around Lhasa as a city itself because they believe it is any which way, the entire city is very very weird and uh, it was the seat of the Dalai Lama etc and the Jokhan temple. So that's what we did uh, after that, uh, I came back. So on Barkor Street there are a lot of, uh, markets that are there. There are a lot of shops that sell souvenirs and all kinds of things, Tibetan art and all of that. Uh, you, if, you, if you're keen on shopping, I'm not a great shopping kind of person, so I didn't do much shopping. I just walked around and just stood there with an open mouth watching people doing those prostrations. Mm-hmm. And uh, did that, and then um, uh, landed up in one small hole in the wall Tibetan restaurant I had some fantastic beer, the local beer, and I had some good food, uh, soups and stuff, uh, traditional Tibetan food. The next day, I went off to visit the monasteries. You know, in Tibet, they have this uh, concept of the three great Gelug monasteries. Now, the monasteries in Tibet uh, are not places where only prayer happens. Prayer happens, of course, but they're also places where since ancient times, students used to come to study. So it was, in a sense, universities also. So like the Dalai Lama was a politico-religious head, even the education system was religious come educating. And therefore students would come there and just stay and study and many of them would go back and get into jobs or whatever. Some of them would become monks also. Mm -hmm. So essentially that that is what it was. It's like Arnalanda or Mm
0: -hmm.
1: right? So I went and visited the Drepung Monastery which is almost like an Oxford. Mm -hmm. So it's got students quarters, it's got junior monk quarters, it's got teachers quarters and so on and so forth. There are classrooms, there are lecture halls and all of that. Right. So it's built on a, a slope as, as is most things in Tibet. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a few long stairs, set of stairs that you have to climb. Reasonable fitness required and if you want to climb up right up to the top, then you have decent levels of fitness that you require. So did you climb to the top? Yes, out of our group, I think when I had gone in there, there were some 50 or 60 people maybe, I think three of us went to the town. Mm-hmm. Ah, okay. Others didn't, they just waited below. The uh, they gave up midway, etc. So it is quite a, uh, takes a, it, it, it takes a toll on your knees. Um, mm-hmm. It was tough, it wasn't a very easy climb. Especially because, uh, you know, it, it's not that if it was in India, I would have climbed it these and most people would have. The problem is because of the high altitude, there is lesser amount of oxygen and therefore, it's that much more difficult to climb especially. Right, right, right. right. So that was the Drepung Monastery. And then I went off to visit another of the uh, great three guild monasteries, one of, one of them is called the Serra Monastery. Mm-hmm. Now the Serra Monastery is, is very famous for something that they call the Monk's Debate. That happens in the afternoon, I think around 3-4 o'clock. So the debate is such that there is a senior monk and a junior monk and mm-hmm. it's almost like a viva examination. Okay, so the monks ask each other questions, the senior monk asks questions to the junior one or vice versa. The other person answers, and there's are certain gestures that, we, that they use in doing this, where they're throwing a question and all of that. Mm-hmm. And uh, tourists are allowed to stand outside and watch this, provided you don't like, uh, disturb them, or make noises, or make loud uh, laughter and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. There, there's a Tibetan religious scriptures are printed in one one place out there, since ancient times it was printed out there or written down out there before the printing came in. Mm -hmm. Um, That's there, you can visit that and uh, there there is something that they call the three sand mandalas which is very famous. Mm -hmm. A mandala is a a recreation of the universe in a sense, Mm -hmm. much like what you see in your Sri Chakra and all that, that's also a mandala. Mm uh, in Hindu Sri Chakra or in, in Sri Lanka, I've seen these things there. But basically, that's a structure on which a stupa is built. Okay. Okay, all like our regular temples in India are built. Mm-hmm. So, these mandalas are made out of sand and the colored sand is used to make it. Mm-hmm. Painstaking, laborious, intensive process. Mm-hmm. They make it all over a period of a year leading up to a particular festival. On that festival, it's displayed and then it's destroyed. Mm-hmm. And then you restart so you know the essence of this whole thing I was talking to you when I was talking about um, uh, Menchuka and that monastery where that man was making this uh, wooden bowl out of a block, he was just hollowing out a block of wood and he made a thing of beauty and you just give it away to the next person who comes, that mm-hmm. act of making that bowl, that act of creating beauty was meditation for him in a Zen kind of way, that's exactly what this is, the act of meditation for those monks So making these mandalas, create a thing of beauty don't form attachment towards it in typical Buddhist terms. Destroy it after that and start the process of creation of something else of beauty again. Okay. okay. That's what that entire thing is. It's beautiful. Um, the Serra Monastery. Back after that, back to Lhasa. Stayed uh, again in Lhasa. I think I stayed for about three, four nights uh, in Lhasa, walking around the place, gently figuring the place out. Then I drove down from there to the second largest city in Tibet, uh, which is called Shigatse. Okay.
0: okay. And,
1: and uh, how far is this or what is the elevation like? Uh, so Shigatse is about uh, what? It's about less than 400 kilometers of a tribe Okay. And you're going upwards. So it, it doesn't gain too much of uh, uh, elevation or it gains about a thousand meters of elevation. Typically, we say that every thousand meters, you should rest one night of elevation. So, uh, but less than 400 kilometers in the mountain, it doesn't seem like it because you keep stopping it. Mm-hmm. So, on the way to Shigatse, there's a the Kampala Pass which is about four 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 thousand four thousand eight hundred 4800 odd meters. Um, that, that's beautiful. From there, you're able to see the, the famous Yamdrok-Saw. So. Yamdrok-Saw Yang, so is a lake um, that's at about 4,500 meters. And it's surrounded by snow-capped mountains and in the distance, you have this view of the, uh, what Tibetan con- Tibetans consider only the Mount Nien-Chen Kamsa. Mm-hmm. That's at about uh, 7,000 plus meters. Yeah. It's the highest mountain near Lhasa and so you see this pristine blue lake and the blue has a very different quality up in the hills. Mm-hmm. Pristine blue lake surrounded by these snow-capped mountains and in the distance you see the holy mountain. That's what the Gampala Pass is from where you see the young so, um, Then you have the Korola Glacier which happens on the way, on the road as you're passing by. There's a Manak Dam lake, um, there's a similar mountain pass that, and finally you arrive at Gyanse and for me Gyanse was a big one because it was historically Tibet's 3rd largest city. Okay. Okay, after Lhasa and Shigatse. In Gyanse, there was this uh, fortress on top of a hill which was supposed to be the gateway into Tibet. So, it was the trade attach used to sit out there. Only after you clear that can you go up into Lhasa, further into Lhasa. That mm-hmm. was how the route was. In this case, I went by flight, so I came the other way. But that's how it was. In, for instance, in the seven years in Tibet book that I was telling you about, gyanse is mentioned very specifically where it required a lot of effort to cross that and move beyond. Right. So that was what that was. But um, with the uh, with Tibet being taken over by China, when that happened, they actually burnt down the gyanse fortress and they left it in a burnt down condition out there as a stark reminder of, you know, in a sense that's who the boss is hmm. you know so they've kind of put that but let's not talk political in this but um, though I have very strong views on that but then they uh, that's a Gansi uh, fortress where I had a far view I don't know if they allow people inside because when I went there they didn't let me go and I think maybe it was because the time was not there time was not right or they have specific opening times I don't know communication is an issue out there so I saw this took my pictures of the place etc stood out there looked at it and imagine how it would have been at that time and the uh, author of seven years in Tibet would have come there and then moved back from there. In Gyanse, you also have another monastery, a famous monastery called the Pelkor Monastery and the Gyanse Kamba. Mm-hmm. So, when there, a nice monastery is not in the league of a Drepum or a Sera but, but they're nice places and uh, after that, uh, reached Shigatse and Shigatse is a, is a large, it's the second largest city in Tibet so it has lots of stuff. It's got bars, it's got restaurants, it's got lots of people and all of that. Stayed in Shigatse um, and then um, from there, the next day is when I moved on. Uh, uh, no, oh, no, no, I didn't move on directly. I went and saw the Tashilumpo monastery. Mm-hmm. You must have heard of the Panchan Lama, right? Yes, yes, yes. Um, He's actually uh, making the news of late. Yeah, that's right. So, the Panchan Lama, in a sense, at, at one point, if the Dalai Lama was the CEO, mm-hmm. then the Panchan Lama is the CEO, the okay. chief operating officer, So oh. second in command, really. But the Panchen Lamas Monastery is there, it's called the Tashilumpo Monastery, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: again a very uh, rebirth kind of thing like the Dalai Lama itself, the post of Dalai Lama, so many Panchen Lamas keep coming in. So, um, visited the uh, Tashilumpo Monastery, beautiful uh, is not the word for that, but a bit of a uh, difference from the Sera and the Drepung Monastery, because this this seemed a bit more modernized and all of that, so it kind of took away from the experience for me personally. Mm -hmm. So, from there, um, uh, I started moving towards Everest Base Camp. Mm-hmm. Uh, I won't get into the Everest Base Camp uh, in this discussion I've got a rush relocation now. But okay. I'll just tell you about on the way what, what one uh, gets to take a look at. So, there's a solar pass that happens out there mm-hmm. and the gap Sola Pass. Mm-hmm. So, the Sola and the gap Sola. Okay. Uh, this, both of them are related to each other in some fashion. The Sola Pass about 4, is about 4,600 meters and gap solar is about 5,000 plus, around 5,300 meters. And from there you pass those beautiful panoramas, fantastic views out there, you pass there and after that you enter the Mount Everest National uh, Nature Reserve. Where you then move into the next pass called the Gavula Pass. Mm-hmm. There at 5200 meters, there you see the entire panorama of the Himalayas wow. on a clear day. And we were lucky we had a clear day, we saw the entire panorama, it was a sight to be seen there. And then starts the, there's a New road. It's a zigzag road that goes all the way up to the Everest Base Camp. So you mean to say, from then on, uh, the hairpin bend, a uh, hairpin. Bends? The hairpin bends, and it's not hairpin really. It's all. It's not like a mountain that you're climbing here. Okay. See, f- uh, for instance, the Gavula Pass is at 5,200 meters. Um, the Everest Base Camp is also 5,200 meters. Okay. So it's not really that you're climbing on those hairpins, but it's just a zigzag. Road. Okay. Okay? Um, okay. And that goes all the way up to the Everest Base Camp. And that is where I'll have to rush now. My Uber is waiting for me, so I've got to rush. So, in the next episode, let's talk about
0: that space. No problem, Anand. I think uh, we'll let you go for now, and uh, we'll have you soon back so that we can continue on the rest part of it, uh, which covers the uh,
1: space camp. Absolutely, Kishan. Thanks, thanks. I'm so sorry that I've got to rush in the middle, but but I'm sorry, I don't have an option right now.
0: All right. Thanks for tuning in. Do come back for more such experiences to the Beyond Up Experiences Travel Podcast. Take care, stay safe, have fun, and whatever else you do, don't trip on the usual.